From Finance and Commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. Above all, it's a show about what's next, creativity, and the innovation and technology that are changing how we work and shaping the future of business throughout our state. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers who may challenge the status quo, but also make their dreams a reality. I'm Joel Shetler, your host and editor of Finance and Commerce, Minnesota's oldest business newspaper and online publication. Thanks so much for joining me. Solar energy. We've been hearing about it for decades, but sometimes it still seems like a fringe option, or else one of an array of renewable energy solutions. Finance and Commerce recently brought together, virtually via Zoom, a group of local leaders in the solar business to talk about the misconceptions business owners have about solar, what new technologies are on the horizon, and how Minnesota might be able to meet ambitious goals for its use of solar power. The experts on the panel were Griffin Dooling, the Chief Executive Officer of Blue Horizon Group, Inc., who leads its energy, capital, and development divisions. Carrie Clem, who oversees the implementation of XL Energy's renewable choice programs across seven states, including the nation's largest community solar program, private solar interconnection options, and green pricing programs. Michael Linder, who joined the St. Paul Port Authority in 2017 as a loan officer supporting energy finance programs, and David Schaefer, the executive director for the Minnesota Solar Energy Industries Association. And I'm looking forward to a good conversation about solar, and uh, uh, thank you all for joining me. So how about quickly we go around the, quote, virtual room, so to speak, and just have everyone introduce themselves, say who they are and what they do really quickly in one sentence or two, how it, what you do relates to solar. Um, so Carrie, do you want to start? Sure. I'm Carrie Clem and I work for Excel Energy. I lead our Renewable Choice Programs team. So my team and I run the programs that enable customer choices for renewable energy at Excel. Great. Griffin? Sure, I'm Griffin Dooling. I'm the uh, president of Blue Horizon Energy. Uh, We design, develop, and construct and operate solar projects our focus is across the upper Midwest. So we work from the Dakotas over to Wisconsin and then down into uh, Southern Iowa is kind of our territory. Uh, we've done a number of projects with uh, Carrie and Michael and uh, certainly uh, excited to join the conversation today. Great, thank you. Michael? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so Michael Linder from the St. Paul Port Authority. I uh, work uh, with the MinPACE uh, Property Assessed Clean Energy Program. So we finance renewable energy and energy efficiency projects throughout the state of Minnesota. Uh, We work with Excel and Blue Horizon and a lot of other partners to um, deploy renewable energy. So, Great. David. I'm David Schaefer, the executive director of the Minnesota Solar Energy Industries Association, or MNCIA. Uh, We're a 501c6 trade organization that represents about 110 different solar companies in Minnesota uh, that employ about 4,000 people. Um, We primarily work on issues related to policy development at the legislative level here in state. We also do regulatory work at like the Public Utilities Commission, the Pollution Control Agency, 
part of the labor industry and more. Um, and then we also provide sort of networking and informational opportunities for our members so they can be kind of the first to, to know what's going on in solar in Minnesota. Okay, great. Well, welcome everyone, thank you. Um, I just thought we'd start with kind of defining solar in Minnesota and, and this question can be for anybody, but you know, solar is becoming more and more important. Uh, according to some just quick research that I did, it counts for over 4,300 jobs in 2019 anyway. Um, it's 2% of Minnesota's energy mix, but I guess there's plans to make it more like 10% over the next decade. And of course we have um, the Solar Rewards Community Program too, which is a unique program, the nation's largest community solar program too. So it seems like a lot is going on with solar in Minnesota. I wonder, how, could, how would you define where solar energy is now, where it's going? Maybe that's one for David, but anybody can take that one just to start conversation going, just to kind of get the lay of the land, so to speak. Sure. So I... I think solar is actually really in like five buckets, <laughs> which okay. is kind of weird because it's this weird technology that's just a panel. And when you talk about solar, everyone thinks kind of the same thing at first, which is just some modules up on somebody's roof. And that is how it started. Um, but residential rooftop is uh, really more about sort of curbing your own usage as an individual. Um, but there's other benefits that come along with the other sizes. So there's sort of a difference between residential and then commercial usage. Commercial is more solar on a building than residential, of course, a bit more up there. With that comes some additional benefits like reducing the company's demand charges. They're billed differently than residential customers. And you can actually help a utility by reducing their peak load during a, a high intense period uh, in the day. Then there's in Minnesota, at least, community solar gardens, um, mm -hmm. and those are about a megawatt, which is somewhere between like five and 10 acres worth of space, uh, depending on how you do it. Uh, that is a way for individuals and companies to participate in solar that's not necessarily on their roof, but maybe out in a field somewhere, but it can be on a roof too, like you see with the Ramp A community solar garden. Uh, there is a statutory max, at least with Excel's program of, of one megawatt. And so there is sort of an additional space in that one to 10 megawatt world that is a little bit untapped, but you see utilities like Connexus doing stuff there where they're putting in five megawatt size systems that they're using to curb their own demand charges against Great River Energy. Um, so that's more of a boutique market at the moment, but we're hoping to increase that over time. And then uh, anything that's over 10 megawatts is no longer considered distributed solar in Minnesota. That becomes utility scale solar. And um, so far there are a few projects like that, but starting in 2025, or I guess now with Excel's kind of recent announcement, maybe more like 2023, uh, we'll start to see a lot more of those projects. And it's many of the other projects require incentives or some sort of rate structure to work. When that project gets started, uh, which will be up by Sherco, that's really the signifier, I think, of solar becoming a least cost resource in Minnesota. So whenever a utility needs additional energy or capacity, they're gonna do a solicitation to uh, different developers. And maybe instead of picking a coal facility or a gas facility or a wind facility as they've done in the past, the least cost option will be solar. So we'll really start to see more solar uh, going into the ground 
based solely on price. So that's pretty exciting, but we haven't seen a lot of that yet. It's been driven mostly by uh, solar energy standard requirements, uh, but soon it'll be incredibly cheap and, and really easy to do. Anybody else wanna kind of give a picture of what Minnesota solar is today from your own perspective? Maybe Carrie, do you wanna talk about it from Excel's perspective, the various different components of it? I mean, consumer industrial, go right ahead. <laughs> sure, thank you. Mm -hmm. I was quick grabbing some numbers as David was speaking to kind of give you some perspective about how this all plays out in Minnesota. And in Minnesota for on-site solar right now, we have just shy of 100 megawatts okay. installed and active. And that's um, based on installations from a number of years. And so, and that is about, I can give you a total here. Um, that's roughly, I wanna make sure I'm using the right number. 5,500 systems that have been installed for on-site solar. Okay. And then on top of that, we have about 700 megawatts of community solar that's currently installed and active with another 300 megawatts in progress. <coughs> Excuse me. And so when you add that all together, that is over 800 megawatts of distributed solar that we have on our system today. And then um, on top of that, we have well over 200 megawatts of universal solar. And so all in all, when you add that all together, it's over a gigawatt of solar that is on our system in Minnesota today. And I'm confirming that number and we'll get you the actual number if it changes, but. Okay. So these projects then, for like that community garden and correct me if I'm wrong, I have a very rudimentary understanding of it, but it's these third party companies that can develop these solar projects and then they tie into the grid. Is that correct? Is that how they work? Um, David, maybe I see you shaking your head. <laughs> um, but then are there other types of installations too? And we'll talk to about separate installations for specific companies in that too. But just so I get my head around the different types of installations of solar, are they all like part of the grid then? Or do some work and operate independently for let's say for Griffin, your customers or something? Are they standalone systems? I just kind of wanted to get my hand or head around how solar works just for people out there yeah. exactly how that works. Cool. You know, every solar system that's installed for the most part, there are fringe cases otherwise, but pretty much every solar system that's installed, you maintain your grid connection. Okay. So, you know, if it's a community solar garden, that's going to be directly connected to the grid. There's no on-site consumption. It's basically a small yeah. power plant. Um, you know, for you know, homes and businesses that go solar and put solar on their roofs or on their properties, you know, they maintain their grid connection and then they actually will produce their own power at times when they're producing more than they can consume, that will flow back to the grid and run their electric meter backwards, generating a credit. And then at night or at times when the sun is not shining, that runs the meter back forwards and they pull from the grid uh, to uh, kind of you know, use the power that they stored in essence uh, during the day. Uh, that's all part of a program called net metering. Uh, here in Minnesota, that program has been around since the 80s. And basically the rules there say that you can have up to 40 kilowatts 
uh, AC capacity on the system, which is essentially the horsepower of your solar system. And then uh, with Excel, you can actually go up to a megawatt of AC capacity, provided that you're sized uh, within certain boundaries of your load. So you can't put a megawatt in a house, but if you have a large factory that's consuming a lot of power, you can put a large system on that factory uh, to provide up to, I believe it's 120% of your annual energy load. Okay. Well, I'll stick with you, Griffin, for a second. Talk to me about, just about your company and you know, there's like yours as well too. What do you offer your customers? Obviously you provide turnkey solutions, but talk a little bit more about what it is you're offering your customers as it relates to, to solar and what is your sales pitch, I guess, if you could put it that way. <laughs> so we started in 2009. So we've been doing solar in Minnesota for a little over a decade now. And over that time we've expanded in, into joining states. Um, you know, really our focus is on really turnkey solutions. So start to finish, we execute the projects. Uh, for the early years of the company, the focus really was on residential, and that was where you know, the most opportunity was in, in Minnesota solar. Uh, since around, you know, I'd say 2015, 2016, we've seen that flip for us at least, and most of our customers today are commercial entities. Uh, those are, you know, businesses that are directly using the power or their landlords that are producing power to provide another service to their tenants, or they're, uh, in some sense, also we work with uh, municipalities and things that are co-generating power for their own facilities. Uh, and so, you know, I think, you know, when David describes the growth of the industry, I mean, we've really seen that firsthand. Uh, you know, we've been fortunate to grow you know, every year through the company's kind of history. And you know, we're fortunate that this year we'll grow again, even with all the headwinds. And so we're feeling pretty good about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been an industry that, uh, you know, really has contributed a lot to the, uh, to the economy. And I think also, and, and Carrie can correct me if, uh, if I'm wrong, but it's an industry where I feel like the utilities have begun to see solar really as a, in the form of a partnership with their, uh, their existing generation and their existing uh, efforts. Uh, solar really is, at the end of the day, is an energy efficiency measure for uh, customers that choose to install it. And, uh, you know, it's reducing their load on the grid in some sense and can be uh, in essence, kind of an asset to the grid in that regard. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, I think it was a little bit fresher. It was a little bit more adversarial. Uh, utilities and, and solar developers are still trying to figure out how to work together. And we've really seen a, a very good partnership, uh, you know, kind of evolve over the last decade. Do you want to speak to that, Carrie, about the partnerships and how a big company such as yours you kind of maintains the grid and such works with companies such as Griffin's? Sure. You know, I I think I'll start with, we have, we pride ourselves on our renewable energy commitments and our commitment to clean energy. And we were the first utility to come out with a really aggressive clean energy plan that included an 80% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030, which is just 10 years away. That's coming up so soon. And then furthermore, we have a commitment to 100% clean energy by 2050. Um, So those are really big, ambitious goals. And that's going to take a lot of resources to get there. 
And some of that will be handled by like that larger scale universal renewables, both wind and solar that we can bring on really affordably for our customers and also with high reliability. And then as we look for the rest of it, some customers want to move a little faster or do a little more right now. And that's where our renewable choice programs come into play. And that includes programs where customers can pay um, a slight premium or even um, enroll in a program that may or may not save them just a little bit of money through things like our WindSource and Renewable Connect, where those are quick and easy and fast to participate in. Some customers like to do a lot more and go a little deeper into their renewable choices, and that's where those on-site solar systems, like the ones that Griffin is talking about, or community um, solar subscriptions come into play. And those options cost a little more. We pay a little bit more for that power, and um, but they give customers a choice. And there's some economics that make that work for some of our customers, and we support them through all of those choices. Mm -hmm. And we work with the installers, whether it's a community solar garden or an individual company, to look at their application and determine how we can safely and reliably hook it up to the grid and help them through that process and help make that happen for those customers that want that choice. Great. Um, One thing, Joel, to kind of bring some of those into specifics as well, when you're looking at this from the perspective, you know, obviously FNC's readers are, are in the, uh, typically in the real estate industry, typically in the commercial property industry. And, you know, when you're evaluating kind of how to bring solar to that type of, you know, a business or that type of an operation, you know, these programs that Carrie's talking about really can make a pretty significant impact. Uh, when you look at uh, kind of solar on-premise with Excel, there's really two or three different avenues you can pursue. Uh, one is just a straight net metered system with, with no incentives associated uh, that you know, can work under certain circumstances, but it's not always the most lucrative kind of option for a, a customer to reduce their electric bill. And I say lucrative, the better term probably is the most impactful solution to reduce an electric bill. Uh, you know, a step up from that would be a program called Solar Rewards, which goes up to 50, uh, 40 kilowatts of capacity. And that pays an additional incentive during the first 10 years per kilowatt hour produced. So it's a performance-based incentive uh, that can help reduce some of the upfront costs or reduce some of the acquisition costs of solar because you have this additional revenue stream to help offset those costs, getting you more quickly to a point where you fully own the system, you've paid off the financing you used uh, to purchase it, and then you're just saving energy uh, and producing your own power for the costs of maintenance. A step up for that from that really goes into a program that Excel has been very forward thinking and putting on the uh, uh, on kind of the market, if you will, which is the PV demand rider credit. And that program applies a special incentive power produced between 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. in the afternoon, which is generally a peak time for the grid. Uh, and it incentivizes users to produce power during that time by giving them an additional reduction in their demand charges, which for many industrial customers is a pretty significant component of their overall cost of energy. Uh, and so in that way, you can have this power produced at a time that's you know, peak for the grid, help save the customer money on their demand, and overall, you know, have a system that's uh, you know, good for the customer and good for the utility. Good. That was going to be my question was I had one about that PV demand program, but um, 
Is there anything else you want to say about that program too? It sounds like quite a an incentive, I suppose, if that's the right word for it. Um, Carrie, maybe do you have, is there anything else you want to explain about what that PV demand credit exactly is? No, I think Griffin did a great job explaining it. It's, it's a credit, it's a rate, it's actually not an incentive, and it gives customers um, a payment for the energy they produce during the peak hours of 1 to 7 p.m. The amount of the monthly credit is capped at the month of demand on the customer's energy bill, and it has to be a demand-billed customer to participate in that option. But beyond that, um, that's a choice that many of our customers are choosing, especially as they're installing systems larger than 40 kW. So they don't qualify for those solar rewards incentives. Um, financially, solar rewards for um, commercial customers is six cents per kilowatt hour. And the PV demand credit is about 6.9 cents per kilowatt hour. The difference is for solar rewards, customers can get that incentive for every kilowatt hour they produce, regardless of the time of day. Whereas the PV demand credit really focuses in on those peak demand hours. Okay. Michael, I wanna draw you into the conversation here. <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> I don't know how exactly, but I just point, point <laughs> you and say speak, but uh, maybe you can talk about your role in all of this, a little bit on how the work that you do in your role and then and how it affects solar and such too on sure. how you see the industry from your perspective well you know we got experts talking about the solar industry i'm certainly not an expert when it comes to solar um but when we talk about uh pace financing that's kind of where the port authority and min pace comes in and so you know that's what we try to help do is you know help you know solar installers like blue horizon uh, and Mincia, you know, as an organization and in partnership with Excel Energy to, you know, help uh, commercial, industrial, agricultural um, um, users of, you know, whether it's Excel or any co-op throughout the state of Minnesota, you know, property assessed clean energy is a great financing tool. So if there were any barriers to installing solar, um, from a capital outlay perspective or other financing perspectives, um, you know, PACE is a great tool. We can finance 100% of, you know, the cost of the project. Um, there are some limitations, but for the most part, you know, we've helped, you know, as Griffin could probably attest to, as well as David, uh, you know, customers throughout Minnesota, uh, being able to install these um, renewable energy systems that they might otherwise not be able to. Um, and, and really the, the biggest, you know, cost concern is, you know, working capital and whether they can, you know, be able to, um, you know, set aside money for, you know, whatever um, system they want to install. And so PACE is a, a good tool to finance that. Um, we provide, you know, different terms depending on the lending partners that we work with, but, uh, you know, certainly, uh, when it comes to solar installations, we've, you know, I'm not sure how many projects at this point we've done, but uh, it's it's been a great tool, um, you know, in the state of Minnesota, as well as nationwide. Uh, and it's definitely growing uh, to help um, implement these projects. So. Okay. I was doing some reading about financing of solar projects too, and it talked about, you know, 
quote the value of solar and how that's calculated and such too. Can you speak to that a little bit about how that, how they, how it kind of gives confidence to investors and such on how that all works? Um, well, just to clarify, Joel, in the context, in kind of the industry context, the value of solar is a, is a tariff set, uh, I believe it's annually by uh, Excel and the Public Utilities Commission, and that applies to uh, community solar gardens. Okay, got it. The context there. Okay, that's just one clarification for myself, so great. Okay, um, so we're talking about you know, commercial installations, Griffin, you talked about that too. I guess, what are some of the big misconceptions or misperceptions, I suppose, that people have about solar um, when you're talking about new projects? Is it cost? Is it, anybody can answer that any way you'd like. Um, what are, what are, what are you seeing in the marketplace right now when people, when they think about solar? I think there's a, you know, depending on the sector, there's a long list of potential misconceptions that, uh, that some folks run into. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest things that we run into in, in commercial, which kind of to your question, is misconception around the cost and the break-even and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, some folks have considered solar in the past and, and looked at it. And, you know, really one of the things about this particular industry and technology is that it has become you know, significantly more efficient in the last, uh, you know, five years, and especially in the last decade, where, you know, if you considered it in the past, uh, the framework really has changed uh, fairly meaningfully, and it's become pretty much a, a totally different economic picture for a lot of people. Uh, when we started doing projects in, in 2009, 2010, a lot of those projects were driven primarily by people who had a, a sustainability focus and, you know, wanted to make an environmental statement for themselves or their business. Uh, whereas today, you know, that still remains a, a motivating factor, but really at the end of the day, it's an economic decision. And it's about taking a fixed cost, you know, in their uh, infrastructure, which can be, you know, really a top five expense for a lot of businesses and turning that, you know, monthly you know, rent payment to the utility into an asset that, you know, they can use over time with a, a long-term uh, warranty underneath it to make sure that they get long-term value and you know, really taking some of those dollars and, and reinvesting them into the business. Okay. Yeah. I think David probably would have some perspective on, on you know, misconceptions more broadly in kind of other areas of solar too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one I hear a lot of, some, I guess sometimes it's, well, maybe the better way to say this is like, solar has grown up so much that many of the counter arguments that I heard along the way are just simply not true anymore. So cost is one. I was talking about how soon solar will be the, the least cost option for, for at least on the utility scale size, or I guess Excel's calling it universal uh, to keep the term similar. So on the universal size, it will, uh, it'll be so cheap. And much of that will be without or with limited uh, federal tax credits too, because I think it goes down to 10% and that's all that will be able to be to qualify. So relatively little federal investment in, in solar going forward. And so soon there won't be any real need for, for an incentive. And I think we're really close to that point now because uh, as long as you get rates structured correctly, like the PV demand credit, uh, you don't need incentives. So that's, that's kind of what Carrie is getting at too, where it's not an incentive. It's 
if you just do a fair market valuation for the services that the solar provides, and not just by the energy, but also the capacity, that's effectively what the PV demand credit price is set at. So uh, that's, that's pretty exciting that we're really quickly getting off a need for too much additional subsidy. Um, I think the residential rooftop space will still need some for a while, but the other sectors are getting uh, closer to that, to that parity point. I also hear a lot about um, like toxic runoff and things like that. People are worried about that. And, and I think that that comes from maybe how modules used to be made in part. And I do think that there's a couple module manufacturers still that maybe will use like cadmium, but they tend to have their own recycling programs associated with it. These days, it's just a lot of aluminum and glass, and uh, there's not a lot that can really hurt the environment with it. Um, so in general, they're they're really safe for the environment, but some people still think that they there's like toxic leaching apparently. Um, and the other one I hear I've been hearing more and more about lately is uh, stray voltage, which is a concept of effectively electrical equipment shooting out electricity as the power runs through the lines and it impacts people or, or what actually is true is the is the cows. It can reduce the amount of dairy production, but this is really only in a unique set of circumstances and it typically has very little to do with the solar. It's just any electrical work can, can cause it. Um, and so to the extent that you're putting electrical equipment where it wasn't before, I suppose you're increasing it, but it's very, it's pretty much de minimis. And I've seen it come up as a way to try to push back against solar and local permitting uh, efforts, and it almost always fails. So it just, there just isn't enough evidence to, to prove that it really has a meaningful impact on, on dairy when it comes to solar. We actually commissioned a study on that issue uh, a couple of years ago because we had uh, a large project where they were asking that question and you know one of the things that we found was really the core issue when you're dealing with stray voltage is uh, an issue of grounding and whether or not the system and the you know electric infrastructure that is there has been grounded appropriately and so i think in 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 the sense of you know when david talks about the industry growing up but this is one of those things as well as the industry is professionalized and as the process has gotten more rigorous and inspectors have gotten more familiar with solar and how to inspect solar and make sure uh, the projects have been done correctly. Um, you know, this is an issue where you're, you know, you don't see this kind of a problem anymore with the system being poorly grounded or, or some sort of grounding issue. Uh, and also as the racking and the components have evolved, uh, now they're all bonded together and the system, the racking systems are UL listed and things. And so the entire process is just a lot more efficient, uh, which I think is one of the things that's contributing towards uh, this kind of element of stray voltage no longer really being a, an issue in practice. Um, it certainly can be a, a very, uh, I wouldn't say dangerous, but you know, harmful uh, situation if you have a system that's poorly grounded. Um, but that same thing can happen with if you have a, you know, poor grounds in an old barn on a, on a farm site, or you have uh, utility poles that are poorly grounded or something like that. So it's not a solar unique thing, and it's not even unique really to uh, a power generating facility. Uh, it's really about the way that the electrical system is, is physically uh, constructed and grounded. Okay. Mm -hmm. well, Carrie, from your perspective, the same question, but maybe misperceptions people might have about Excel or maybe their own choices that they might have to be able to choose a renewable like solar. You know, what are some of the misperceptions or 
barriers, I guess, that you'd like to see brought down when, when it comes to people thinking about solar? Um, I think a lot of times we see the projects when they're actually ready to go. And so we don't always hear about those misperceptions because we see the projects when they're ready to go and the developer brings them into us. Um, but I think one of the things that I'd like to emphasize is for those customers that choose to make solar choices, Excel Energy supports them through that choice. Um, we have a lot of tools and information on our website to have, help people understand the various options available to them and how a certain option may or may not be a good fit. And then once they make a choice, we try to make it easy and pleasant for them to go through that process. And sometimes interconnection can get really complex. And um, we try to help them through that process as best we can and keep them informed along the way, often through their um, solar developer. And so we talk to solar developers and um, have regular outreach with them. We have stakeholder work group meetings where we um, talk about issues that are bubbling up. Um, we try to be collaborative wherever we can to find those solutions and um, make, make solar work for people. I think well, one of the things that we see in the industry is that um, I would say from a utility standpoint, a lot of the you know, misconceptions or confusion typically occur with uh, cooperative or, or municipal utilities where they're smaller and they don't have quite the same experience always with integrating solar into their uh, local environment and, and some of the regulations involved. And, um, you know, I think when you hear about, you know, disagreements between a customer who's trying to access solar and their utility, um, you know, we, we often see that that just comes down to you know, miscommunication or kind of a lack of following you know, the process and things like that. Um, and we've seen particularly over the last couple of years that, uh, you know, utilities really have gotten kind of the process together. There's been a number of new uh, programs that have been released from a regulatory and, and from an interconnection standpoint over the past several years that have provided a clearer process for a lot of utilities. And so some of that confusion that, you know, you may have heard about in the past has kind of been straightened out. And there are certainly kinks in some of these processes that we're all working out and we're all trying to make better, um, you know, as we adapt to some of the new ways uh, that the projects flow. But uh, I think the bottom line is there's really, there's a structure now to, uh, to accept and, and progress these projects that, uh, you know, with an investor-owned utility like Excel or with some of these smaller utilities, there used to be a little bit more piecemeal and now it's, it's a little bit more unified. So that's been you know, positive and hopefully that will continue to improve over time as we work through these stakeholder groups and things uh, with the utilities. It sounds like there's a variety of different types of installations now then of solar. Um, like Michael, you mentioned different customers that you have, cooperatives, you know, it's not just for the, um, the rooftop local person, or it's not just the big utility, I guess. Can you talk about some of the variety of different projects then that you've worked on or seen lately and how it's changed over the years, maybe? Yeah, certainly. Uh, there's definitely been a progression, you know, uh, with Griffin, you know, it's a lot of agricultural uh, producers. Um, and a lot of the projects that we do, you know, throughout the Lebanon County metro area are, you know, commercial rooftop, um, but paces for both renewable energy and energy efficiency. So we do HVAC and LED lighting and, you know, 
anything that reduces energy use overall. Um, and Excel, as you know, it has provided um, our customers with the ability to go into those buildings and you know figure out what the best benefit to those customers are. And a lot of times, um, you know, HVAC units and other projects are you know a little bit cheaper and easier to do than uh, commercial rooftop solar. Um, but we've certainly you know over the last you know year. Uh, especially, you know, solar uh, on commercial rooftop buildings has been um, accelerating. So we've been doing a lot of those projects, but um, kind of all over the board, you know, and when you talk about, you know, outstate Minnesota, obviously agriculture uh, mm -hmm. is a huge, you know, uh, they can benefit uh, definitely with renewable energy. And so it's um, kind of hard to pin down exactly, you know, where the trends are going. Um, you know, I think Griffin and, and David probably can, speak better to um you know where that growth is coming from okay do you have thoughts on that david about growth the variety of different customers um how it's changing any thoughts yeah it, it's just cost i mean it's as the price of of modules goes down as the price of the other equipment goes down as people figure out how to better install it faster the costs keep coming down and um when the cost comes down it, uh, it gets away from the first adopters and, and it's become something everybody can do and and for commercial customers that payback period can get well within five years sometimes and sometimes it can be almost like instantaneous in a way yeah. um so when you're getting prices like that it's hard to say no no matter who you are is that um I mean, all renewables are, are great, but since we're talking about solar, is that, you know, one of the benefits that solar might have over other renewables is that costs, cost benefit, the costs are coming down or something else. I don't mean to put words into your mouth, but. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really it, but like it's cost paired with how dynamic of a technology it is where you can put a couple panels up on somebody's roof and they can be happy. You can put thousands and thousands of them out in a field and basically displace like a some sort of uh, like natural gas facility or peaker plant. So there's all sorts of different things you can do with them. And that sort of dynamic element is sort of why I think uh, even though wind is incredibly cheap, I think solar is going to surpass it because some of it. So every time a wind turbines uh, blade doubles, I think the power goes a multiplier or like an exponential growth element by two. So I'm obviously I'm not a wind guy, but uh, the point <laughs> is the way you make wind more cost effective is you make it bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay. And that's why you're seeing giant turbines out you know, like offshore. Well, with that comes some added complications too. If you put giant turbines in the middle of Minnesota, it works out okay, but it's getting harder to permit those. Uh, they're so, so big and, and solar is getting so cheap and so efficient and you can just put up a berm and nobody knows it's there. Okay. What's coming down the pipeline as far as technology goes? I've been reading like that maybe some of the early adopters, early installations, early 2000s that maybe all oh, by 2030 or so, they'll be ready to be changed or you know, replaced or whatever, is the new technology getting more, you, you said more efficient, but does it supply more power? 
what, what kinds of technology, and we've talked about costs coming down too, but what else is there out there that's kind of exciting for solar from a technological perspective? Yeah, I think, I think efficiency is really the big part. So like the average module, uh, Griffin probably knows the efficiency numbers better than me, but it's something like 22, 20% efficient. I don't know. Something like, yeah, 19 to 22, depending on the model. Yeah, so it's, there's a lot of power that's left uh, uncaptured at the moment. And so as that increases, uh, the ability of sort of powering from an individual module goes up. And that's, that can, that's just great in general. Um, maybe the simplest way to think about it is the eight panels up on somebody's roof can power them significantly more in, in 10 years than it can today. Um, so that's one big part, but really the big game changer is storage. So the biggest challenge with any room, well, not any room, with wind or solar at the moment is their uh, intermittent resources is what they're called. So, so the sun only shines during the day, wind typically blows at night. And so being able to capture that, that energy and spend it when you want it is going to be key if we're going to have these high penetrations of renewables. So um, fortunately, it does seem like storage prices are dropping pretty dramatically and um, utilities are starting to do it. I mean, I, I think with Excel's announcement recently, they're going to do one of their first, if not their first project with as part of that Sherco project. Okay. Uh, so storage is right around the corner. Is that what I read that Tesla's working on is in-home battery systems that stores energy? Is that do I have that correct? Is that kind of one of the projects they're working on? Well, there's a lot of companies that make uh, battery storage. Tesla has, I think, the you know, biggest sex appeal from a pitch standpoint because of all of the other things that they do. Uh, but uh, the technology, you know, in their system is is the same as, as several other kind of options on the market. You know, and I think this is one of the things where, you know, when we look at the next decade for solar, that story of continuing to improve efficiency with modules and, and more productivity out of modules, you know, is, is certainly what's driving, you know, price and then helping with efficiency, you know, and then also looking at, you know, as storage becomes more and more uh, cost effective, it's opening up applications for solar that previously you, you couldn't really tap into. And we talked a little bit about net metering here in the state and the, and the 40 kilowatt limit, uh, you know, that applies primarily outside of the investor-owned utilities. So Excel and Minnesota Power have their own programs. Uh, you know, but industrial factories in those you know, outlying areas, as storage becomes more uh, cost-effective, you know, are now able to build storage along with their solar. They don't have to worry about net metering from a policy standpoint. They can you know, truly have a kind of a microgrid where they're providing their own power, storing it, using it at night, and really running their business uh, efficiently in a way that you know, is not policy-dependent. And so as that continues to grow, you know, that's one of the things that I think is expanding the use case for solar. Uh, I mean, we're working with a couple of factories in, in Iowa and then a few in Minnesota right now where they'd be, you know, hundreds of kilowatt hours of storage uh, to address a need that they have for this ability to, you know, power their, uh, their facilities, reduce their peaks uh, of their demand uh, and help, you know, feed solar into industrial processes where before, uh, the timing of production in the middle of the day from solar didn't match up well with where they needed the power uh, for a lot of their uh, their plant processes. So, you know, I think it's it's kind of a story of broadening the use case and, and greater efficiency and things, helping with the economic model and 
you have a lot of intersecting threads that are just continuing to make it more compelling. Okay. Well, talk a little bit more then about your customer base. It seems like it's growing. It seems like you can approach all kinds of different companies, um, you know, farms, businesses, even individuals. As these costs come down, as the story gets told, um, how big can it get? How big a market do you see? What what do you, what's your pitch then? Or what, what do you see in the marketplace in the next 10 years for a company like yours, Griff? Um, I think for us, you know, and you look at it over the long term, you know, I think we'll see a place, you know, 10 years or maybe even sooner in the future where, you know, businesses that are, are not choosing to have some level of cogeneration to hedge their power costs and reduce their you know, energy expenses are almost an anomaly. In much the same way where if you look back, you know, to 2010, you know, people that had a phone that could do all these amazing things that phones can do today, you know, were kind of at the, uh, you know, avant-garde of, of having, a, you know, an iPhone or, a, a, you know, an Android at that time. And now, you know, everybody down to teenagers getting their first cell phone has a phone that can, you know, have the whole internet and everything else, you know, on it. And I think we're seeing that now you know, with a lot of the commercial customers and a lot of the businesses that we talk to where, you know, they're seeing energy as an input that they want to have some level of control over. And I think for most businesses and for most uh, facilities, it's they can't build enough solar to fully self-power themselves, but any amount that they can you know, generate uh, on their own is an is amount they don't have to purchase and they can kind of hedge that risk longer term. Uh, and I think we're going to see you know, down the road, that's going to become an increasingly popular you know, way of thinking and uh, it'll be almost unusual for a business or, or an operation not to have some level of cogeneration. And I don't think all of that will be behind a meter, which means that it's powering that site specifically. But when you think about these programs like community solar and the potential for community solar to go on industrial parks and be an additional source of income for that landlord, or you think about you know, some of the work Excel's doing with the universal solar, uh, you know, that can now go into a whole different uh, areas and, and applications as well. Um, and so I think we'll see this becoming more and more prevalent. And really what's driving that is a lot of the trends that David described. And when you think about the modularity of the panels and things like that, the ingredients for a residential system are the same as the ingredients for a large universal system. And you know, that drives a lot of efficiency and, and a lot of reliability where uh, it's an industry that can continue to adapt to uh, demand and, and meeting what, uh, what consumers and, and utilities need. Okay. Um, Carrie, you talked about a few programs that are out there, maybe a few incentives for customers to use. <laughs> are there others? Are there more needed, in your opinion? Any thoughts about, from your perspective on, on that? Sure. I think that um, I'll, I'll start with storage because that's been brought up a little bit mm -hmm. here. And um, we do allow customers to add storage to their solar system today. And we've worked with the installers to identify the equipment that customers are interested in and actually worked with them to pre-create some design configurations that we've approved to make it easy for the installers to know how to set it up and get it through the process quickly. So the first time something new comes up, we have to dig in a little harder to figure out how to interconnect it um, so that it works well with our system. But then after that, those go through pretty quickly. And we actually have over 100 installed storage systems 
today and we have another 86 in progress on the customer side. So we are seeing some momentum pick up there. And that's exciting because like um, Griffin said, that enables us down the road to count on that more as a resource as opposed to, um, you know, solar on its own may or may not be available when we really need that resource to come in and generate power on our system and meet our customers' needs. And as we look at, you know, the number of customers that we have in Minnesota, we have about 1.4 million electric customers in Minnesota. And currently we have um, about 5,500 of them with on-site solar. So I think all customers have different needs and look at energy in different ways and rely on different solutions to meet their needs. And that's where I think having a wide array of choices available to meet those customer needs is really important. One of the things that we're really um, working on in Minnesota, in addition to offering the existing programs is really expanding some of the things that we offer. Um, we recently filed an option to put solar on customers' roofs in a different way that would enable low-income customers, instead of going through net metering, to get a roof lease payment of $30 per month, really targeting those low-income customers who aren't as often sought after um, directly um, for our traditional solar rewards low income offering. Um, we haven't seen a whole lot of those come through and we're looking to try a different way at the request of the Public Utilities Commission. As we look at COVID and how it's impacted people, the PUC requested that we look at some things differently. And that's where, you know, we are trying, we suggested speeding up the build out of our universal solar at the Sherco plant where we used to, or where we run coal facilities and kind of speed up that transition to clean energy there, um, bringing in some of that storage, but also looking at low income households and how can we serve them maybe in a different way that brings them a new choice. So that's one of the things we are, looking at. We also are expanding the availability of our Renewable Connect option, which um, offers customers the ability to um, choose to source their energy from wind and solar. And um, right now we have a waiting list for that. And um, we have customers who want it and we don't have capacity to fulfill it. So we're in the process of getting that bid out and built out so that we can bring that choice to more customers as well in the future. Okay. You mentioned the current COVID crisis, and obviously it's hitting everybody. Um, how has it hit, impacted solar in particular? Is there any way that it's, um, I suppose, from you know installations and that nature too? But is there any way in particular this recent COVID crisis has impacted solar? Have plans changed? Is are installations affected? And again, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but. Any, anything in particular? So I'll take that and then Griffin, if you want to weigh in on your own experience, that'd probably be good. So um, the way community solar gardens work is they tend to plan way into the future. And just because of the way a few things stacked up, a lot of gardens are getting built this year and a lot of gardens are getting sort of submitted this year. And so um, it hasn't really impacted the community solar garden market at all. Okay. I was worried about the residential people um, because they 
have to do a, a lot of like door-to-door -door sales and go in people's homes and uh, who knows what's going to happen there. But it does seem like ever, since everybody's home, a lot of people are looking at how they can do home improvements. And so some of the residential folks have said that they're doing just fine. Uh, the commercial industrial people, I feel like, is maybe where the biggest pinch has been. Um, where I have heard of, as soon as this happened, a lot of companies were reevaluating their business plans, probably made all, ceased all their payments on unnecessary expenditures. Um, but it does seem like that's freeing up again. And okay. what I can tell, it, it's, it was a little break, but things are back to, almost back to normal for that, that group as well. Okay. Yeah, Joel, I would say that, you know, on our side, I mean, one of the things that we saw was, you know, Initially, there was probably a two to three week period where everything froze and, you know, from a new sales standpoint, conversation standpoint, everyone said, hey, we need to figure out what's happening here and, uh, you know, assess kind of where we're at. Um, you know, we've been fortunate that all of our projects and things have proceeded and, and nothing's, we haven't had any issues in that respect. Uh, you know, our staff is healthy and have taken precautions to make sure that, you know, they don't uh, get infected or spread infection. Um, but, uh, you know, from a standpoint of where we see this kind of now and, and over the last kind of couple of months as things have cleared up, you know, I think it's actually in some ways brought this concept of solar more front of mind for some businesses and some uh, uh, homeowners where, you know, they're looking at cost now as something that they want to try to get some level of control over. And uh, we've seen a number of conversations where uh, we had, uh, you know, commercial and industrial customers that were saying, you know, no, we, we do not want to pursue solar this year because we're investing in X, Y, or Z growth initiative, or we're building a new plant or new uh, manufacturing line. Uh, whereas now they're saying, you know, we're not going to need that extra capacity. We want to invest in how do we take cost out of the business. And that's something where, uh, you know, particularly with the financing solutions available and with you know, the way that customers can finance 100% of a project through a program like MinPace, defer their first payment into the year following construction uh, with that May property tax payment in, in, the, in the following year. Uh, you know, they can really see the cash flow benefit of getting the savings from a system and then uh, make that payment uh, in the following May after they realize their tax benefits and things like that. Uh, so I think for us, you know, we've seen it really turn some conversations around where people were focused on growth. Now they're focused on cost and solar really is kind of the ultimate energy efficiency tool for a business to try to control their cost. Okay. Um, you know, I think I may have said this one at the opening, but Minnesota gets 25% of its energy from renewables. It includes wind and solar. Proponents want 50% by 2030. Is there anything keeping solar from being a big part of that? Um, I guess what's next? And, is there anything standing in its way? It sounds like from what you said, David, that just from a cost benefit analysis, it's a win-win, it's a benefit for the environment, but it's also cheap, cheap energy. Does anything need to be done to make that goal? I mean, are there any other incentives that are needed? Are there any other legislation that you'd like to see to pave the way? Anything standing in its way of just flowering as an industry, I guess, <laughs> so to speak? Yeah, so um, we're talking to, uh, when you're looking at like the scope of utilities across the country, Excel is definitely like one of the top few. I, I think that's 
when we like have battles with Excel or whatever, it's it's over like how many hundreds of megawatts are we going to have versus like are we going to have a project here? Uh, and that is the case in some places. We are there's about 173 utilities in Minnesota, and some are much more open towards solar than others. Okay. Um, and so, well, I think it's pretty clear that Excel is going to hit all the statewide goals. It's not as clear to me that some of the other utilities will. So I do think we're going to have to figure out some other way to help bolster many of the uh, co-ops and municipal utilities and, and maybe even Otter Tail Power, which is an investor-owned utility in the Northwest. Um, I think Minnesota Power is going to hit their 10%. I think they'll find a way. Um, so that's one spot. And then the other thing I think that would be good too is to figure out some way to really encourage more of those one to 10 megawatt size projects. Um, that's kind of what got Connexus on board with doing more solar uh, and they're a, a cooperative utility. And if they can do it, so can some of the other ones, I think. Um, so finding some way to make those possible and priced correctly, I think will be um, not necessarily a game changer, but that's a good way to get us closer to that 10% goal quicker because um, rooftop projects, residential rooftop projects, they're, you know, five, 10 kilowatts. So you need to do a lot of them to really hit those statewide goals, but you can take big cuts out of those goals by putting in larger eight megawatt, 10 megawatt size projects. Okay. What about Michael, from your perspective, financing these, anything inhibiting growth i suppose or um will you answer that anyway like i don't want to sure. in your mouth. <laughs> okay. yeah so i think you know talking about larger scale projects i think that's kind of you know one of the you know we have a lot of commercial projects uh where you know a large manufacturing facility or whatever they can do you know a a megawatt plus, um, but, you know, if they're kind of limited by, you know, the size that they can do. Um, but we have, you know, a lot of smaller scale projects. And so it is really kind of, you know, a numbers game where you just have to, you know, try and work with as many um, utility providers as you possibly can. And, you know, we get resistance um, from some co-ops, you know, throughout the state. But for the most part, you know, it's not something that we try to get involved in. And usually, you know, a solar provider uh, like Blue Horizons already come in and kind of figured that whole uh, resistance piece out. Um, but um, but certainly we have, you know, customers who want to do, you know, they're limited by the scale of the project that they can do. And then they want to, you know, think about community solar on a rooftop or something like that, you know, in the metro area specifically. Um, so certainly there, there seem to be some limiting factors and, uh, as well as, you know, the rewards that are provided to smaller projects, um, being limited as well. So. Okay. Well, I see that we're coming up to an hour and I want to be respectful of everyone's time. Are there any subjects that you'd like to talk about that I may not have brought up as it regards to solar and any other issues that you see or um nothing <laughs> <laughs> i would uh just mention as we talked about earlier about the different types of technologies that are available um you know with battery storage um you know we've had you know other uh clients that you know whether it's combined heat and power or something else to try and offset their demand usage you know we haven't quite yet uh done a project beyond 
uh, solar. Um, we've had people approach us with, you know, smaller scale wind, um, which, you know, as Griffin kind of had mentioned, doesn't, doesn't quite pan out. Um, and, you know, other types of technologies. And I think solar combined with, um, you know, battery storage is, you know, hopefully something that pays, you know, we would like to do our first project with a battery storage system. Um, we haven't yet, but uh, I'm happy to hear that uh, there are projects that are moving forward with that and hopefully on a larger commercial scale. Great. So Joel, I'd yeah. like to just let your readers know that um, if they're curious or would like to learn more about exploring their renewable energy options, we have account managers who can help them who are very well versed in all the choices. And for smaller customers who may not have an account manager, we also have a lot of information on the website, but we also have a business solution center that can help them really understand all the ins and outs of the different choices and how to um, proceed through that process. So we're there to help them throughout their renewable energy journey. Great, great. One thing, Joel, I think uh, got a project that I think ties together some of these you know, strands that we've talked about today that I can, I can walk you through here with our last couple minutes, if you don't sure. mind. Sure. So this is a project out in uh, west of the metro. It's actually an industrial facility that uh, we installed 117 kilowatts of solar here. Uh, it's with Excel, so this was uh, done with Carrie and her team, and this project used that PV demand rider credit, so they're receiving a reduction in kilowatt hour consumption and also a reduction in the actual demand fee that they pay on a monthly basis, which is important in this kind of situation because you've got a large industrial facility with a lot of demand, and so they're paying a, a fee for that demand as well as their, their lower cost for their actual power that they consume. Uh, this actually was a project as well that Michael financed uh, with the Port Authority. And so with that MinPACE program, they were able to construct this project with uh, no money out of pocket uh, at a fixed rate for 10 years. And then they repay that every six months uh, along with the property taxes for the property. Uh, and so it's a really efficient way for you know, them to access solar and see a lot of these savings from bill reduction and the tax credits before they have to make that first payment on the, on the following year's property taxes. And this is you know, one of those situations where when we talk about you know, solar having changed over the past you know, five years and 10 years, and this is a customer that we worked with for two or three years to really try to hone in on an economic model that was going to fit for their specific situation. And a lot of those trends that David talked about with cost and efficiencies and things, you know, this was one of those stories where cost came down to a place and efficiency came up to a place where the overall value proposition and the return on investment that they could see finally you know, made some sense. And we're seeing that really with a lot of different customers and, and kind of all different types of businesses where over the past couple of years, uh, you know, the economics have really hit a place where it now starts to make sense when you compare the uh, rate of return and, and some of the different economic metrics of these projects you know, for a customer versus some of the other options uh, that they might have to invest in the business. Great. Thanks for walking us through that. That's really fascinating. So thank you. Well, with that, um, thanks everyone. I really enjoyed our conversation. I've learned a lot about solar today. I really appreciate you taking out some uh, time from your day to, to join us for this conversation. So thank you, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, Joel. You, you bet. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to Beyond the Skyline.
We can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about finance and commerce or to subscribe, go to our website, www.finance-commerce.com. I'm Joel Shetler, Editor of Finance and Commerce. Thank you again for listening to Beyond the Skyline.